and bless them. So hear us now as we wait on before thee and grant us help from the sanctuary. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Bible-believing Protestants, we believe in what our forefathers called the means of grace. What they meant by that was God's sovereign appointed means whereby Christ communicates to his church, to his people, all the benefits of redemption. In the Shorter Catechism, and in the Larger Catechism too, but the Shorter Catechism, question 88, it says, What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? And it speaks here then in the answer about the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word. That's why we put this pulpit front centre. Because the word is centre to all that we believe. And we believe that this is God's means of communicating his redemptive blessings to his church. And then we read the sacraments and prayer. All of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So these means the word and also the sacraments and also prayer are God's appointed means to nourish and to sustain uh, the elect of God in our union with Christ and upon them all rests God's sovereign purposes of grace in this world and we have to remember even when we think of the, the sacraments and as Bible believing Protestants we believe that there are but two sacraments there are not seven as the church of Rome would teach there are two sacraments baptism and the Lord's table that they are but signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And I, I want to re-emphasize again, and I've been thinking of this very, very much so, that we ought not to look for other means, nor should we try to innovate new means in order to communicate the benefits of redemption to the church of Jesus Christ. There's a great temptation today so the old means don't seem to work. So let's try something new. Let's, let's bring in the praise band. Put it there in the corner. Let's have dancing in the meetings. Let's have sermonettes. Instead of messages in the meetings. Let's have visual presentations in the meetings. All of these things are, are innovations. Brethren and sisters. And today we go against the tide when we don't have them. But I'm glad we don't have them, nor are we looking for them. And I would go even further in that we have to keep them outside of the building because they're not part of God's ordinary means of grace. And when we get tired of God's ordinary means of grace, then we'll look for our own means. And when we bring in our own means, we're only bringing in the world into the church. And we're only bringing trouble into the church. And I think the only thing that unites us together as Christians is the word, or the sacraments, and prayer. And what else do we have to unite us bar those things? At this communion service, it's good for us to understand the vital importance of the sacraments as a means of grace. The sacrament is a Latin word and it signifies the oath 
of loyalty which a soldier takes to a commander. At this table today, we are pledging our allegiance, as it were, to the Lamb afresh. So in the Christian sense, it's a vow of fidelity, it's a vow of obedience to Christ, which we take. Those who believe in infant covenant baptism, they believe that this vow is taken for them. Parents take the vows for their children. But in receiving the Lord's Supper, we all take it as soldiers of Christ. We're pledging allegiance to the Lamb. During the Old Testament times, there were two sacraments, circumcision and the Passover. The former was instituted in the days of Abraham, the latter in the days of Moses, and both were bloody sacraments in harmony with the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament dispensation. But in the New Testament, we now still have only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and both of which are unbloody. Because after Christ finished his perfect sacrifice, there's no more shedding of blood. All the shedding of blood has been finished. Now, with a sacrament, there are two parts. There's the outward and the visible sign. We know in baptism it is the water, but in the Lord's table, of course, it is the outward elements of bread and wine, which we partake of. So we cannot have the sacrament without the outward visible sign. And there are many today, I have spoken to people, for example, in the Salvation Army, and and they told me they were baptised. How were they baptised? They stood under the flag. Well, I don't care what flag you stand under in the Salvation Army or wherever you're standing it under, it's not baptism in the biblical sense of the word. And so there are those, because they couldn't agree in the sacraments, they just set aside the sacraments. But we'd be better agreeing to disagree than setting aside a divine ordinance of Almighty God. But there's also the inward spiritual grace that's signified. A sign points to something that's signified. And this is the internal importance of the sacrament. And it is called uh, the righteousness which is of faith. And there are lots of ways that that is uh, described for us in the New Testament. Romans 4.11, the forgiveness of sins. Mark 1.14, faith and repentance and so on. And so there's a union between the sign and what is signified. And really that is what summarizes the spiritual essence of the sacrament. And where it is received in faith, the grace of God always accompanies it. So could we reiterate that because it's so important. There's a union between the sign and the seal and what it signifies and where it's received in faith today at this table and where you sit in the pew, then the grace of God accompanies it. A few weeks ago, we considered the significance of the upper room from Mark 14 And amongst all other important matters that we considered there, we discovered again that it was the place where the Lord's table was instituted. That's vitally important. It's recorded for us in all of the synoptic gospels, in Mark and Luke and in Matthew. And today I'm going to focus your attention in on what Matthew records about it because it's one of the most detailed accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
Our Puritan forefathers, they called the sacraments a visible sermon. A visible sermon. The word they said was a trumpet to proclaim Christ, but the sacrament was a glass to represent Christ. God in mercy has not only given to us the audible word, he has given to us the visible word. So what we have here today, you have from the pulpit the audible word, but you have in front of you the visible word. Those are all mighty important factors. Verse 26 enforces the truth that Christ himself instituted this sacrament. He's the king, he's the head. So here we have, I believe, the inauguration of the New Testament part of the covenant in the upper room when Christ instituted this a special fellowship and remembrance meal in the upper room. He alone can bestow grace and he alone has the sole right to provide the seals of grace. This is a seal of grace that we're at today. Luke 22 verse 20 very particular tells us that it was instituted after the supper. So they ate the Passover supper and then Jesus instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. It was not a, a meal to satisfy physical hunger. They've already had that. This was a spiritual meal. And it prepared the disciples for what lay ahead. It was, it was Christ's antidote to fear for them. Because Jesus partook of it prior to his suffering. And he was teaching them that this is what will strengthen you. As you face your suffering. As you face your battles in the world. There's grace. There's grace to face the battle. And this is where you get the grace to face the battle. How many don't know the grace because they've never been at the table to receive it? Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, has a very masterly work on the Lord's Supper. And I was reading over it in the past week. And in wonderful simplicity and yet we could say profundity, he gives to us the spiritual meaning between what was instituted and transacted on what it means. And I have simply today borrowed his outline. And I want to highlight some of the truths that he spoke of before we come to sit at this table today. Let's not partake in ignorance. We need to partake in knowledge. And knowledge and faith go together. So there are four things emphasized here. The taking of the bread, the breaking of the bread, the blessing of the bread, and then the administering of the cup. So we'll follow them just very quickly and briefly to go through them. So first of all, the taking of the bread. Jesus took the bread. When Christ took the bread, he was separating it from its ordinary usage and, and he was giving a mystery to it that it didn't have before. It signified that God in his eternal decree had set Christ apart for the work of redemption because he was separate from sinners. This is my body. This is now taken from amongst the common things of the world, from the most common food of the world and set aside for a holy purpose. In setting aside these uh, common uh, elements, the bread and the wine, he showed that they were not for everyone to feed upon. The multitude that met with him were not invited to partake of the Passover feast with him. 
nor to partake of the Lord's table with them. Those who are to partake of the Lord's table are those who have been separated by Christ from the world, who know his grace, who know his salvation in their hearts and in their lives. And they must be not only saved, they must be separated from the world and they must know something of the sanctifying power of the Spirit of God in their lives. And this is why we hold that those who partake at the Lord's table to use the confession of faith again, they must have made a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only those who have made a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are those that can profess salvation, are those that say they're separated from the world, are those that know something of the sanctifying influences of the Spirit of God in their hearts and in their lives. Only those have a right to participate at this table. In the free church we have what we call an open table. We say you don't have to be a member here to sit at the table because we hold that this is the Lord's table. And we cannot uh, stop others who are the Lord's coming to the table. But I just want to re-emphasize again from this uh, wonderful truth that the taking of the bread illustrates for us once again that the bread was been set aside for holy purposes. It's significant that Christ took bread and any other element. Why? Well, the bread prefigured him. Christ was typified by the bread. Now this is evident to us many different places in the Old Testament. <clears throat> I think of First uh, Kings chapter 7 verse 48 where at the dedication of the great temple we read that upon the table of gold was put the showbread. The showbread of course typified Christ and a wonderful illustration of Christ. I think of that cake that was brought to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 6. We read that he looked and behold there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. <clears throat> Christ took the bread because it represented him. He was the answer to the type. It also resembled him. He himself said in John 6 verse 48, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Bread was a very common food in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was something that was very useful. The ordinary people would not have made much use of the, of the glamour and of the glitz of Herod's palace or of Pilate's empowerment. It would have been no use to them. But they needed bread every day to live. There's no subsisting without that bread. And without Christ there's no subsisting for us in this world. One of the most lovely pictures of it is of the manna that fell in the camp of Israel for 40 years. Every day they had fresh bread. And on the Sabbath day the Lord gave them double uh, on the sixth day to prepare for the Sabbath day. They had bread every day. And Christ is the bread that has come down out of heaven. As we partake of this bread today, and it's only bread. Sometimes people think it's something more than what it is. It's not. It's just bread, brethren and sisters. It, the substance of it doesn't change. It's just bread. But it typifies and it resembles Christ. 
Christ took the bread. Secondly, he broke the bread. He broke it. And of course this was a prefiguring of his death. It was a shadow of his death. And of his passion that just lay ahead of him. We read in Isaiah 53 and 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Just as that bread was taken and broken, so God the Father took the Son and he literally, physically bruised him. He was bruised. What was the cause of his suffering, his bruising? Well, it wasn't for anything of his own desert. We read in Daniel 9, 26, The Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That was a great prophecy of Christ. He was going to be cut off, but he was not cut off because of anything that was within himself. There was no reason why he should be cut off. We read of the high priest. When he went into the, the, the tabernacle or the temple on the day of atonement, he had to offer first for himself. Hebrews 9 and 7. He had the mitre, he had the holy garments, but he wasn't pure or he wasn't innocent. He needed an offering for himself and then he offered for the people. But Jesus Christ as our great high priest, though he offered himself in sacrifice, it wasn't for his sins because he had none. He was spotless, pure and totally innocent. It was for our sins. We love those words in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. For our sins. As we think of the bread that Christ took and it was broke. And we break the bread and it's broken up for you. As we think of the bread that was taken and was broken. We think of how Christ was bruised in the great offering of Calvary. For our sins and for our iniquities. The question has been asked. How could Christ suffer being God? Well, the answer is simple. He suffered only in his human nature, not in his divine nature. One commentator illustrated in the following manner. If one pours water on iron that is red hot, the fire suffers by the water and is extinguished, but the iron doesn't suffer. And so the human nature of Christ might suffer death. But the divine nature is not capable of any passion. When Christ came to this world, he took on our humanity. And when Christ was in the human nature, at the same time, enduring the wrath of God, the fire of God that fell upon him at Calvary, the divine nature triumphed. If Christ suffered only in his human nature, then how could his suffering satisfy the wrath of God for sin? I'm going to give you a very big word now. It's what theologians use. Because of the hypostatic union. What is that, the hypostatic union? Well, it's simply a technical term that theologians employ to describe the union of Christ's humanity and divinity in his one person. The human nature being united to the divine. The human nature suffered. The divine nature satisfied. 
Christ's Godhead gave him majesty and efficacy in his sufferings because Christ was sacrificed, he was priest, and he was altar. He was sacrificed as he was a man. Priest as he was God and man. Altar as he was God. I'll repeat that. He was sacrificed as he was man. Priest as he was God and man. And altar as he was God. Now it's the property of the altar to sacrifice, to sanctify the thing that is sacrificed on it. And so the altar of Christ's divine nature sanctified the sacrifice of his death and made it meritorious. Oh, the wonder of Calvary. We bow in wonder and in amazement at the cross of Calvary afresh today. He was broken. Oh, the bitterness of it. He was broken. He was broken. But also the sweetness of it. Because in his bruising, Isaiah tells us we are healed. Isaiah 53 and 5. When we sit at this table, we're remembering the bruising, the breaking of the bread. Uh, how bitter it was. But we're also remembering the sweetness. Because by that bruising, we are healed. Thirdly, we have Christ's blessing of the bread. He blessed it. This was the consecration of the elements. Christ, by blessing the bread, sanctified them and made them symbols of his body and of his blood. And Christ consecrating that bread tells us three basic truths. He opened up the, the whole nature of the sacrament to the apostles. This was the mystery. And as surely as they received those elements corporally or physically, so surely they received him into their hearts spiritually. Christ's blessing the elements signified his prayer for a blessing upon the ordinance. He prayed that the, the symbols of bread and wine might through the blessing of the Spirit of God sanctify them and be a seal of all of the spiritual mercies and blessings contained in them. And in blessing the elements, he was also giving thanks. In the original, it just means he gave thanks. Christ gave thanks that God the Father, in his infinite riches of grace, he had given the Son to expiate the sins of the world and of Christ give thanks, then brethren and sisters, you and I ought to be here to give thanks also. He gave thanks. And we thank God for Calvary today. We thank God for the bread that was given and was broken and was blessed. But in closing, notice the cup that was administered because he took the cup. There is an abundance of mercy in our great God. Christ was not sparing. He not only gave us the bread. He gave us the cup. Of course the cup is just figurative. And, and is put for the wine that's in it. So it wasn't just the empty cup he gave. But it was the cup with the wine in it. And he told his disciples. Drink ye all of it. Every blessing that Christ. Has in union. With the father for his elect. He wants you to share it. He's holding nothing back. All of the blessings of Calvary are ours. And he invites you as his people to share in it. 
all of the blessings he invites you to share in today. And we're just told, then he gave them to his disciples. Very, very intentionally put in there. He gave them to his disciples. He had prayed for them. John 17. His prayers were not for the world. He wasn't praying for the world. People don't like you to say that today. But when Christ was praying. He was praying for his elect. He was praying for those who had believed. And he was praying for those who would believe through the word of their testimony. He was praying for his elect in the world. And now in this instance. He's telling the disciples that this bread is the children's bread. It is only for his people. The spiritual feast of bread and wine. And that's all it is. Just a spiritual feast. It's for those whose sins are remitted or forgiven. Verse 28. And it's under this phrase that all of the blessings are, are there. Justification. Adoption, sanctification, glorification. They're all written into that little phrase. For many, for the remission of sins. If you're here unsaved. And you have no experience of the new birth of God in your soul. You're welcome to wait and you're welcome to watch. But I would caution you not to partake. To eat and drink unworthily. 1 Corinthians 11.29 teaches us is to eat and drink damnation. My men and women, that's a serious charge for God to level at anyone today. You know your soul. You know your heart before Almighty God. And he says if you eat and drink unworthily, not discerning the Lord's body, you eat and drink damnation to your soul. What a responsibility. The invitation is to do. This do in remembrance of me. Here's the mystery of it unfolded to us. Matthew 26 verse 26 to verse 29. And what mercies that we're still observing it. 